Hello and welcome to Anam Radio. We're going to start with Who Am I? I was born in Hanau in 1895, study of music since the age of 12, have cultivated as a violinist, violist, pianist or percussionist the following musical fields, chamber music of all kinds, cinema, coffee house, dance music, operetta, jazz band, military music. I have been the concert master of the Frankfurt Opera since 1916. As a composer, I have mostly written pieces that I no longer like. Chamber music and all sorts of instrumentation, songs and things for piano. Also three one-act operas, which will probably remain my only ones. I cannot offer analyses of my works because I do not know how I should explain a piece of music in a few words. I would rather write a new one in the same time. Besides, I believe that my things are really easy for people with ears to understand, so an analysis is unnecessary. People without ears cannot be helped. Well, of course, you know who it is if you've looked at the title for today's episode. It's Paul Hindemith, one of the most practical, but also one of the most overlooked composers of the last century. And today we're talking to Timothy Young, Anam's head of keyboard, who's had an attraction to this composer for a long time. So, Tim, tell us how and when you first discovered Paul Hindemith and why he's become so important to you. Thanks very much, Phil. In my years of study in Italy, I was doing composition alongside my performance degree. And of course, I was going out to look for as many texts as I could on the art of composition and discovered a fantastic book called A Composer's World. And of course, the author was Paul Hindemith. And this book was basically a synthesis or rather his actual notes for the Charles Eliot Norton lectures at Harvard in the 40s. I had no awareness of any of this, including a lot of Paul Hindemith's works. So it was a source of fascination to me, and in particular, the pragmatic and practical approach that he had with composition. And, you know, it was something, as he described in different moments throughout his career, as it was just the work that he had to do every day. He had to compose. It was an essential ingredient in everyday living. And it was able to somehow bridge that gap when we see composers on pedestals. They obviously men and women of genius, but the fact that they are human and they're great minds that do make an enormous number of considerations around how they execute their craft. And I use the word craft because it was the way that Hindemith described composing. It was a craft with a K, of course. And uh, this craft was revealing to me because there was no stone left unturned. So, yes, you might have a genial, creative approach to things, but the fact was he could put it into words and he was able to explain in very, very simple terms what was going on in a composition. So, look, can you tell us a few things that you might have learned about how to write, how to write music? Well, the thing with Hindemith is that he was a a reactionary in many ways to the excessiveness of this German romantic subjective expression that had existed you know the massive orchestras the overly personal subjective nature of a lot of the musical writing and so he was sort of trying to move away from that in many ways I mean in one in particular was the fact that he started to write a lot of chamber music you know it was avoiding the excesses of of those massive romantic orchestras. We're talking really about for instance Richard Strauss and and Mahler obviously 
and Wagner, of course, and the, Wagner. the father of them all. And I think that's where we suddenly notice a lot of his, his output is, is chamber music. But getting back to the compositional style, he started to look back to Bach, for example. I mean, even back to the Flemish polyphonists. I mean, I think that's an important thing that really I noted because he himself said he didn't love Bach. He revered him, but it was more the Flemish polyphonists that he found that he got a lot of inspiration. And so what you see in his style is an extraordinary organisational, structural consideration of how a composition is put together. And so in many ways, it removes one from this subjective expressionism. You see the style of the, the writing and the structure of it, the nature of it tends to move one away from, let's say, free forms. You know, points when there's anarchy that he was trying to avoid. He could just see music was going in a direction where no one could relate to it anymore which later on in life tied in with another approach he had with composition with Gebrauchel music, which is literally this utilitarian music that he would write for people, for anybody to play. And so a lot of importance was on writing music for amateurs. So structurally speaking, there's always an incredible internal logic to the way that his compositions are made. And you can see it. I think you've touched on something very interesting because although he's very much a 20th century composer, He's never waving the banner for the avant-garde. He's actually not an avant-garde composer, and yet he's not repeating anything exactly from the past either. He wants to create something new, but he seems to be aware that audiences and composers are growing further apart. As 20th century music becomes more and more complicated, the composer and the audience are becoming more distant from each other. This is something that really concerned him, I think. This is exactly what this Gebrach music was all about. You know, unfortunately, it's been misinterpreted and criticised, and so everyone sees Hindemith as someone who's just utilitarian. Writing for amateurs. That's right, and it's just not the case. I mean, he was, in my opinion, one of the great composers of last century. When he did, in the 20s, sort of come onto the scene he very much was considered an avant-garde composer. And in particular, again, it's this reactionary response that he had to this subjective expressionism that had come before. He could also imitate this style as well. I mean, he was such a genius that he could write in really in any style, and that becomes evident in certain pieces where you can see him really using that knowledge and that capacity to actually then make fun of it. And this is what I'm getting to here is that There were a number of literary and also pictorial approaches at the time, such as Dadaism, which then sort of moved on to Surrealism, that he was certainly a big part of. And I think this was a response also to the nature of the times. I mean, we were in a period between two world wars. Well, let's, let's talk about that exactly now, because one of the works that you programmed in your recent concert was the Kammermusik Number 1, which is for piano and an unusual combination of instruments. This is written over 1921-1922 and it really gains him a lot of attention. Suddenly he's a name and there are some certain crazy elements to this piece. So tell us more about the Kammermusik number one. Exactly. So this period, as you mentioned also in the introduction, you know, those three operas that he talked about as well, those three one-act operas also really put him on the map. I mean, he gained a lot of attention from well, the media. Notoriety, actually. Notoriety. Well, exactly. And the subject material is also very risque. I mean, even today, if you were to program some of those, people would be going, hmm, should we be doing that? But yeah, the Kammermusik was in many, many ways a reaction to things. I mean, the fact that it's called Kammermusik in itself is a little bit odd. I mean, chamber music literally is the title of it. You would think more a string quartet or a piano trio, maybe a quartet, quintet. We're talking about 12 solo instruments here. 
This is not chamber yes. music in the con- traditional conception of it. I'm just going to say what they are. There's a wind trio, trumpet, piano, an accordion or harmonium, a string quintet, and a percussion setup which includes a siren and a tin can filled with sand. sand yeah. Precisely. So you can see none of the, the instruments necessarily fit into the mould of one's traditional conception of chamber music. So you've got elements of the jazz band there. You've got the trumpet, you've got the percussion. The siren is some sort of allusion, let's say, to the futuristic, reactionary, dardistic people, you know, and, and also an allusion to the war as well, of course, obviously warning signals. And then what else have we got in there? There's the... Accordion. Accordion, thank you very much. Yeah, so again, it's, it's this cabaret style, which also was a huge part of the culture of the time as well. And the subject material of the Kama music actually is a foxtrot which was a very famous foxtrot of the day that Wilm Wilm wrote. And that's also in there as well. You can see, so the material is not the traditional material that one would think of. And there's also something really, really funny that he writes at the beginning of the piece, which is that the musicians should not be seen by the audience. Now, how are you meant to achieve that? (laughs) You didn't attempt that, but... No, we didn't attempt that. Well, you tempted to attempt but it. But his point was, it's just poking Mark and just saying, well, who cares about you? I mean, this dadaistic response to things is reactionary. The world was in such a tumultuous state at the time that it's literally poking Mark and making fun of anything and everything just because it's just gone to the point of silliness. I think because we weren't there, it's hard for us to imagine how depressing, depressing a place precisely. Germany was after the First World War. There's so many, so much destruction, so much poverty unemployment and of course we know what that led to but I think this data stage that he went to is is something he actually grew out of fairly quickly absolutely and he He saw the limitations in it of course yeah but it was fun while it lasted fun while it lasted and also I mean for very practical reasons also it was dangerous for him to pursue that because the Nazis of course were becoming more and more empowered and he really couldn't be seen to be doing that sort of thing Well, of course, that had great impact on his life. He was married to a woman who was part Jewish. So, of course, he had to leave. He had to leave. So he ended up in Switzerland, the States. They become his two, you know, really home for a while, for a number of years, yeah. Look, we're just going to finish up shortly. I'm going to read you something. I was reading this book about Monteverdi's Orfeo recently in an article by a musicologist called Nigel Fortune about the revival of Orfeo during the last century. And you might wonder, well, what does Paul Hindemith have to do with Monteverdi's Orfeo? Well, he was a violist, but he was also, as you've mentioned, very interested in Flemish polyphony, very interested in early music. Paul Hindemith was one of the first composers to create a performing edition of Monteverdi's Orfeo, which really respected Monteverdi's intentions. And I'll just read a little from this article. When Hindemith was preparing his audition, as far as possible, he scored for authentic instruments, an approach consistent with his long-standing enthusiasm for the viola d'amore. The edition appeared successfully on the public stage at the 1954 Vienna Festival. The instruments used for the performance were in the main borrowed from museums and private collections, though the recorders were modern copies by Dolmetsch. Now that's very interesting, but who do you think was in the audience? And he says this performance had the effect on him of a lightning flash. It was Nicholas Harnoncourt. And we don't often think of Hindemith as being responsible for setting in train the modern early music movement, but actually he possibly did. Yeah, I mean, this was the thing 
there's so many branches to his talent. I mean, there was obviously one, you, you know, we can see here that he's playing viola de more. I mean, he was, a, he was a brilliant soloist. He was one of the greatest viola players of the time and was a, a member of the Amar Quartet, who was really at the forefront of, of contemporary music, of the contemporary music scene, a big part of the Donaushikan Festival as well, of which Hindemith also became director. So, you know, the influence that that quartet had was enormous. But also as a soloist, I mean, he premiered Walton's Viola Concerto as well. I mean, he was really up there with the great players of the time. So, yeah, it is of no surprise to me at all that he was totally into this early music and original instruments because one other thing that a lot of his students report back was that he could play anything he wrote. Well, let's let's just talk a little bit more about that because Hindemith's sonatas for solo instruments appear quite frequently in Anam solo recitals, and that's because... Well, he's a, he's a master writer. I mean, he could write for anything. And he set himself this task of writing for every orchestral instrument. Exactly. I mean, who else um, has done that? Yeah, no one. Yeah, yeah. Well, not, <laughs> who not, else could yeah. actually do it? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's exactly and, right. And do it as well as he did. Yeah. And it's so idiomatic. I mean, I think about the piano writing. Yes, it's, it's extremely difficult, but it is so idiomatic. It feels right un, under the fingers, let's say. You know, so there's a real incredible mastery of every instrument and its technicalities also in there. You know, I think this is where the genius of Hindemith truly comes to the fore, is that there's no limitations to what he could do. And, you know, he's even pedagogically, you know, played such an important role. His, his classes in composition, if you were asked to be a part of that, you didn't apply in a generic sense. He asked, he literally invited you to be part of the class. That was an honour to be able to do that. And so that teaching, of course, became sort of a a uh, base ground for the best teaching that we can possibly think of. He wrote books on oral training, on training harmony as well, which are used in Europe still today. They're still all being published, and they're, they're incredible, the, the, the way that he approaches it and the thoroughness of that training. Tim, it's fantastic to talk to you about Hindemith, and it was a great concert. And this has been Anam Radio. I'm Phil Lambert, and thanks again for listening. <laughs>